I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. His name is Lebowski. That's your name, dude. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of the Seat Struck Movie Podcast. My name is John. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Curtis. Curtis, and sadly, Quinn is uh, saving the world again this week, but I'm joined by my wonderful friend, also who is with me at Durham University, Lawrence. Say hi, Lawrence. Hello. Yeah, so we're in southern France uh, this week, Toulouse. Yeah, you're uh, you're always Mr. Worldwide. You're like at some interesting (laughs) location. You're in Turkey, you're in south of France, you know, you're just, uh, you're all over the place. (laughs) Thanks for being on, uh, Lawrence. Happy to have you on. And uh, as I think we like to sort of introduce with our our guests that come on the program, you know, the, the movie that we're picking today is the irreverent late 90s Cohen brothers comedy classic the big lebowski um so why because i i know when we do an episode with guests usually we try to you know pick a movie that our guests are really into and i guess from the hop i just want to ask you like what why did you want to talk about this movie or what what is it about this movie that you love so much as i have said to curtis many times like i i love this movie partly because everyone in it seems like an everyday person you can kind of imagine that the characters are people you would meet or you would know you know whether they be family friends just acquaintances and I love the sort of overarching story where because it is just full of twists and turns and kind of at the same time ridiculous and yet uber simplistic you know when you watch it for the first time it's a it's a it's entertaining it's interesting you kind of wonder what's going to happen next and yet even when you know kind of what the the if you watch it for a second or third time and you you know what the plot is it still remains entertaining and just because the cast of characters, I think, are quite easily identifiable, or at least for me, you know, I have, unfor- well, fortunately and unfortunately, maybe friends and families and acquaintances who I could quite picture for each and every character in the movie. Um, yeah, because you said that, you said I was like Donnie. I was like, I'll, I'll yeah. take that, I guess. You know, <laughs> it, Donnie. <laughs> he, 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 you know, exactly. This is my point, right? He's just butting in completely out of his element, you know, like a child that's wandered in <laughs> and just, you know, has to, you know, but. Things like, you know, like even even minor characters like the landlord who's just kind of, you know, reminding him like, hey, you know, got to pay the rent today. Like, yeah, and that's know. so funny too, because a lot of those characters, you get those moments of kind of little, little like kind of spice of life moments with them, but then they pay off later. Like especially you brought up that landlord. Like it's not like what like an hour and twenty minutes into the movie where then we finally see his little performance at the theater. You're like totally yeah. forgotten about it. It almost feels like it's a little bit of absurd service comedy. It's so abrupt. You're like, what is this guy dancing? And you're like, oh yeah, that was actually introduced earlier in the film. It's all you know, it all it, it's all tied together as uh, yeah, as Walter exactly, Nagu would say. Yeah. You know, it really ties it together. So um, you know, and that's what. The movie starts with this missing rug that ties everything together. Yeah. And also, yeah. pisses on the rug ruins just it's a catalyst. Who would have thought, you know? <laughs> yeah. And this one, of course, directed by Joel Cohen, written by Ethan and Joel Cohen, uh, you know, the famous Cohen brothers. They've done this one previously before this movie came out. They did. Fargo, which is probably like one of my favorite movies, if not top five movie. I love Fargo. And I think there's a lot of overall, the Coen brothers have certainly a style. Like I think Lawrence, you actually really did a great job kind of outlining with this. A lot of, a lot of their films taught, you know, engage themselves in this kind of, I, I was reading somewhere, I was reading a great comment where someone said, it's not like, it's not like a, a realistic world. It, it's sort of, it's sort of like a world that ha- adheres to its own logic and behaviors. Like Walter just like pulling out a gun and getting ready to fire it. Like they're not arrested. Like nothing really serious comes from it other than they get through 
threatened that they could get punished like league play wise at their bowling alley. Otherwise, everyone kind of accepts it. They're like, oh yeah, it's crazy Walter again at the bowling alley pulling <laughs> out his gun. Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The characters all feel like they lived in this, they live in this like lived-in world that feels realistic, but at the same time, they're so they're so quirky and screwball. There's all these machinations and things happening around them that people get kind of involved in that otherwise, you know, good and bad people and people of kind of you know murky moral ambiguities all get kind of thrown into this this this, this giant story that kind of just throws everyone together. So um I, I love that about their movies. And I yeah, this is such a, a a good one for that certainly uh the movie of course this movie actually came about when um the coen brothers were working on their film barton fink so they actually started writing this film but in the meantime uh they already had you know casting choices in mind certainly uh jeff bridges of course at the time he was busy with the film uh, wild bill and john goodman was busy filming roseanne so they ended up making fargo in the meantime which is kind of cool it's like oh yeah okay we'll we'll just make fargo and then get back to this it's like making a, a separate totally That's classic Steve movie. for it too <laughs> And, you know, and, and this movie above all else is so, it's so important. It's so, it's so based on the great characters that are written and scripted and casted in this film. Certainly no one better than the big Lebowski, the dude himself, um, of course, played by Jeff Bridges, but this character was actually inspired by a lot of like famous, like people in just their own lives. Famously uh, a friend of the Coen brothers, uh, Jeff Dowd, who had actually had been referred to as the dude. He was an activist and film producer um, and a lot of his sort of character traits of the dude were actually based on him, as well as other people as well, too. A friend, Peter Exline, I believe the actual whole plot idea of a character having their rugly like, pissed on. And that actually comes from his own like background and stories that he would tell his friends of like, these crazy adventures. So they kind of had a mismatch of all these kind of lay layabout, quirky, you know, kind of late, early, late 60s, early 70s hippie characters that they kind of threw together to make this uh, mismatch of this really you know hilarious and and, and quite uh riley funny uh the dude and of course you know there's other characters involved casted as well too uh for the big jeff lebowski you know not the you know not the big lebowski the big jeff lebowski which we'll get to um <laughs> they were originally going to cast people like robert duvall anthony hopkins who i believe uh was didn't or was tied up with a different movie at the time and gene hackman who at the time had taken a break so they ended up uh they didn't cast with them, but uh, there's, of course, other characters as well, too. Uh, the character of Maude, played by Julianne Moore, was based on uh, Carolee Sh uh, Schneeman, the artist, and also Yoko Ono. There's a lot of kind of like uh, modern, uh, like kind of late 70s, early 80s, like modern art style with her. Kind of a mixed match of different artists, different kind of avant-garde artists. Uh, the character of Jesus Quintana, the, you know, a character who has lived on outside this movie, too, certainly. Uh, he was actually based on a character that John Totoro played in kind of like a, a show he had did on theater it was sort of he played a character that was very similar to jesus quintana and actually just took that character and basically added it straight into the movie um the structure of this you know it's it's very much the Quan brothers themselves said they they wanted to really kind of make this movie feel like a, a raymond chandler detective fiction and as this movie kind of goes on it it does kind of feel like a kind of like a silly noir it's kind of like a like, a, like red, a spoof red herrings on, too yeah yeah, spoof yeah. on noir. Certainly some of the characters too, like Maud's, you know, her whole transatlantic accent. She sounds like a Catherine Hepburn character in like <laughs> a, a smoky noir or something, but it's like all it's it's this noir style with all these kind of weird, strange yeah. little, uh, you know, cat, you know, r random assortment of characters and and little storylines and plot lines. Um, you have this, but of course, they with all the characters as well, kind of not being or not being who they say they are, right? You have Bunny mm -hmm. really being a runaway who's changed her name or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like she's someone else. You know, the nihilists have dabbled in, you know, adult <laughs> film and other kind of things where 
you know, their names and, you know, have been changed. They, they were an electronic music band, you know, like, you know, they, you know, everyone is kind of playing a role that they want others to see almost and then hiding their true self, which then adds to the extra layers of complexity, even if the kind of plot of the, you know, the, the crime caper, as it were, is maybe not that, not that complex, right? Mm-hmm. But it's that sort of thing where at the end with the kind of reveal where it's like, Oh, well, you know, you threw out a ringer for a ringer, right? <laughs> Everyone's kind of, you know, double crossing everyone all at yeah. the same time. And and yet, so something that becomes, very, it is very simple, becomes complex mm. because of these extra layers of re- then relatively simple um, sort of hidden identities, really. Yeah, certainly. And even just the, the setting of the film in, in Los Angeles, they they described it as actually sort of a character in of itself. They said they had to kind of film it and shoot it in L.A. because so much of the movie is is much like, as they said, like a Raymond Chandler story. It's like going through different parts of a town and exploring, you know, different different neighborhoods and different famous streets and different sites and different times of the day. And it, it kind of builds this rich character of this you know lived in city. Um, and it's so important just to the overall scope of the film. Um, of course, as well, too, a couple of other notes about this. Um, in terms of pre-production, of course, they were working on Fargo. They ended up working on The Big Lebowski, I believe, with a budget of $15 million. So not, uh, you know, super, super large. They had kind of already had characters in cast in mind, of course, John Goodman's character, uh, Steve Buscemi. But actually, Jeff Bridges, they weren't sure if they were going to get him. They had kind of considered other actors as well, too, including Mel Gibson, who was considered for the role Fun. of a dude. What a weird little <laughs> alternate history timeline that would have been if, uh, if that most, had like, happened. The undo dude possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeff Bridges actually said that, like, for preparing for his film, you know, he didn't uh, actually, uh, you know, he he actually drew a little bit of it on himself, but he drew on, 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 he met Jim Dowd as well, too, and kind of met with him and, and saw his character. But he sort of drew on himself. He said, uh, famously, he said, he drew on myself a lot for the, you know, thinking back in the 60s and the 70s. I lived in a place like that and did drugs, although I think I was a little more creative than a dude. I love that. And I think kind of like following this film, like Jeff Bridges, it kind of wonder, like, who is Jeff Bridges? Is he the dude or is he Jeff Bridges? Because I feel like after this movie's come out, he sort of adopted the dude persona as like part of his character too. I mean, certainly he's played him again on like commercials and stuff, but like whenever you see him interviewed, he kind of has that like dude kind of vibe. And I'm like, yeah. oh, he's sort of- Well, it's, it's weird because I, uh, I watched the last picture show with him a few, you know, a few years, a couple months ago. And it was so weird to see him again because he feel like this kind of jock, you know, and I'm like, this is so Jeff Bridges. But then you think of like the dude in Big Lebowski and I'm like, what? They could be more different. Yeah. You know? So it's like, who is Jeff Bridges? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that there is a kind of side to Jeff Bridges that is very intense. You know, we think about certain roles he plays. Yeah. He's a very intense individual, but the guy's got to switch off at some point. And I imagine <laughs> that the kind of, switched off relaxed kind of Jeff Bridges right the guy who's having a beer at his barbecue like that's the dude (laughs) right I I I wonder whether this is maybe also then a Jeff Bridges you have in a professional and a private sphere right I can imagine that Jeff Bridges the actor would be a very intense individual he wants to get it right stay in character all the time (laughs) right you know like this is the kind of thing right um, yeah. and, and that would suggest some of his sort of method acting mm. methods, right? Meeting characters um, beforehand on who they are based, trying to yeah. get into that role. Hmm. You know, that would suggest a rather intense or at least someone who takes their profession seriously. Yeah. And that is not the dude, right? The dude doesn't take anything seriously. Yeah. And I just wonder whether, you know, when Jeff Bridges goes on holiday, right? Or, or, or on a lazy Saturday is wandering around the house. Does he... 
you know, put on his bathrobe and slippers <laughs> and wander around with a with a carton of milk and like, you know, just sort of on, you know, sleep on his carpet, you sleep know, on his carpet, but, you know, very nice carpet. You know, well, does he does he yeah. smoke a joint in the bath? You know, well, like like. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that because Jeff Bridges, like it, it, based on the dude, a lot of the dude's wardrobe was Jeff Bridges' own clothes that he <laughs> wear at home, lounging around at home. So he actually like a lot of his, you know, his his jelly sandals. Jeff Bridges says he still uses and wear those wears those to this very day. I'm sure they've probably worn down quite a bit, but uh, oh, you know, right, the, he actually had. Fact. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's it's heartening to know, our, our, you know, famous uh, you know multi millionaire actors live just like a. Uh, you know, post-grad bachelors with uh, right. with their first apartment. Uh, <laughs> but if we imagine, you know, obviously Jeff Bridges' background as well, like I can't imagine, other than having grown up in the kind of Hollywood area, right, with his, with his father being a famous actor as well, like I, I can't really imagine there's a lot of overlap between the dude's actual life and Jeff Bridges' upbringing and, you know, whatever. But... As you rightly pointed out before, maybe that meant, you know, he was a student in the 70s in California. Like, so there might have been some some overlaps mm. and, and inspiration in that, you know, in that sense. And also, of course, uh, in terms of kickers, we have John Goodman as Walter. Uh, John yeah. Goodman originally actually wanted to have a different type of beard, but he ended up settling for that, you know, that thin chin strap beard that goes all the way around, you know, because he has that like short high and high and high cut off top military look going on. And he's very, uh, very tight with all of his pockets and his cargo shorts and cargo uh, vest and, and everything going on. Uh, also to note this movie, of course, you know, the great God King himself, Roger Deakins is the one who shot this film. And, you know, this movie has some just gorgeous cinematography going on. And, you know, the movie, it's interesting because I think the movie, you know, has a distinct kind of LA look to it. Uh, certainly um, even some of the scenes like around the dude's apartment and I kind of, you know, it, it, it's shot in a way that does feel, you know, very, very LA and very, very of that, that look, yeah, but it has a lot of, kind of, we get we kind of a Western feel too, you know, with the Sam, Elliot kind of monologue yeah, and like quite literally, yeah. and everything too. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, the movie does have a lot of throwbacks to different like 60s and 70s styles, but you know, they really tried to avoid kind of a cliche look with it. They wanted to kind of keep things light and poppy, but it does at the same time, it does feel very 90s. Like it has kind of a throwback, especially like what later in the scene when they're in, say, Jackie Treehorn's kind of lounge. It's like got that 70s retro <laughs> party furniture with the big kind of like circular couches and stuff. And it has like a very distinct sort of style, but the movie does still feel very kind of modern and 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 it's, and it's also a, it's, such a, it's such a wonderfully weird film isn't it like can you just imagine like pitching to the studio it's like well this is about bowling and like the only, <laughs> the, dude. the only thing that i had although given that the decor is a little different but the only thing that reminded me talking of sort of coen brothers universe but you know doesn't it remind you of that of that um location in in uh, Hail Caesar, where they keep George yeah. Clooney's character hostage. Right? <laughs> it's that same living room. Like I, I like that's the thing I have in my mind. You probably right? use the same set again. Yeah, it's the same set, just different furniture, right? But the, the the room layout seems eerily similar, and just kind of, but again, plays with that kind of you know political narrative where you have you know different characters aspiring to very different and conflicting political outlooks, which we mm -hmm. have now in the movie with with the dude and, and Walter having not only different personalities, yeah. but, but very, you know, potentially very different political outlooks. You know, one mm -hmm. that, you know, in discussing the, the, you know, when Walter pulls out his gun, right, after they leave the bowling alley, the dude says, dude, you can't just pull out a gun, <laughs> right? That's, 
yeah. you know, you know, Smokey's a pacifist, man. You know, he's got <laughs> mental health problems, it's, it's right? And, and Walter's response is, I thought that's what pacifism was. You know, like, Donnie's you know, just chilling in the back. <laughs> yeah, that interplay between the two. Uh, that also shows, I guess, that their friendship seems to transcend this, mm. this political difference and, and could be potentially a sort of, actually a, a sort of symbolic, you know, moment or, or thing that they're able to bond over, you know, essentially friendship and bowling. Mm. Okay. And that, that seems to be the all important thing. <laughs> and mm-hmm. not bowling brings everyone together. <laughs> right. And not the, the and not the 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 political differences, right? Yeah. And and, and I, I can't wait to talk about the bowling in this movie because a little bit of fun trivia is that yeah, outside of that dream sequence he has, Jeff Lebowski doesn't actually bowl in this movie. We never see him bowling. We just see that, him that's right. sitting and observing and watching people. And I think the bowling alley is kind of this the cantina bar of like different kind of characters <laughs> and, and 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 moments, a little philosoph and philosophies and little life and moments that come out. And it's sort of this place that feels like out of time. I mean, even certainly with the the Sam Elliott character who just sort of pops in. I you don't really know if he's actually this. He breaks the fourth wall at the end. He's breaking the fourth wall as the narrator in the beginning of this movie but you know we, we don't really know if this is like a real place there's a bit of a supernatural element to, to it uh with, with you know it's a little bit of fantastical magic and in, in it in this sort of place they uh, reside in uh but that credit i guess i can really introduce us getting into talking about this film but of course the movie itself it's just sort of like a little bit of a, a satire on noir there's this kind of overarching story and this sort of crime that happens that really kicks off the story we we meet the dude and i love the opening monologue with Sam Elliott. And I think it kind of speaks to sort of the ethos and one of the themes of the movie, which is masculinity masculinity itself. You know, he's talking about like, what is a man? And he's like showing like Jeff Lebowski. He's just like the dude. He's like opening up a crate of milk and or half and half and like sniffing <laughs> in it. And it's the same crate of half and half and half. It's so great watching this film again. I think like a lot of films, you can watch them and kind of process them, especially a lot of these like run of the mill puppy mill Netflix films that just come out every seemingly gone every two weeks. Yeah. They're just like the, the algorithm machine, you know, watching a movie like this, you know, you, you observe so many little moments over and over again. And I think that's what's so great about it. Even there's that scene where they go to the bowling alley for the first time. It's so well shot. Like you see like the focus on the the close up of the bowling ball and you get like the, the kind of bowling alley itself and it's just beautifully shot like it's really fun to watch and all the stars all over the bowling alley we see those in the opening credits and those kind of appear over and over in a lot of dream sequences and a lot of other uh spots in the movie in different locations we see a lot of these like blinking stars it reminds us of kind of like the the glitz and glamour of la but i guess kind of like a cd glitz and glamour they're always in these kind of like uh kind of scuzzy looking locations it's a lot of you know showing how beautiful la is and kind of poverty and kind of these uh impoverished areas but uh yeah and that starts off the plot we meet the dude you know what an opening you know the care you know the famously of the dude probably you know the dude goes through so many different fashions and styles in this but i think him wearing the flip-flops the robe the kind of stained t-shirt really, he's got a really nice like cardigan or whatever too I was oh yeah I, I actually tried to buy the dude cardigan it's like 200 dollars. i'm like oh, yeah uh, low-key uh <laughs> he's got you know he's got all, all the stuff he wore that was like you know, crappier like layabout clothing is now is now uh now expensive. It's probably because you know the dude has lived on is kind of a symbol. So we're gonna talk about that <laughs> after this movie. But uh, uh yeah, so of course the dude is heading home to his apartment, kind of a little scuzzy looking apartment. Even the way it's filmed by Roger Deakins, like it's the, the lights are dimmer, it's kind of mistier, it kind of it feels a little bit more claustrophobic, like it kind of gives you the sense that this is sort of like a really dingy, small it, yeah, uh, apartment. Exactly. Films... With some interesting character character flourishes too. I don't know if it's supposed to be Richard Nixon who's bowling and kind of like the print he has above his like 
record player but there's like that weird print i think it's nixon like bowling and a lot of little character flourishes like that uh and you know his 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 bathroom with the candles laid out when he's taking the bath later and he's yeah he's smoking the roach anyways the dude's coming back home and it's actually a little great moment of almost like horror when he like open turns in the light and the guy's like right behind him i actually forgot about that i was kind of like whoa it's very abrupt the dude gets the shit kicked out of him and one of these these uh henchmen pees on his rug oh and, you know, the dude the dude above alice is so upset by this you know the that rug as we find I out and, and, many, that. <laughs> and many characters tell us it really tied to room to get really tied the room together and uh of course they find out in that little this encounter they're like you're the big lebowski you know we we're, we're coming for you and they talk they bring up bunny lebowski who's his wife and he says like that's not my wife you find out it's actually the wrong big lebowski it's a different big lebowski so that of course after that incident brings us to bowling and that you know where where jeff the big you know the dude it's i'm going to be calling both characters the big lebowski but the dude uh jeff lebowski he's talking to his buddies walter subject and and, and Danny, uh, sorry, Donnie, about what had happened and, and and sort of what they should be doing. It's a great way to start off the the characters themselves too, because they're they're discussing this horrible incident. And Walter, in particular, is is so focused on the rug. You know, the rug really tied the room together. And it's a great little way of kind of introducing their ethos. I think we were saying a little bit sort of before we started this program, but kind of one of the themes of this movie is also about. I think there's a much stronger sort of political philosophical slant than I even realized like upon rewatching like I had seen this movie many many years ago and I kind of that part of the movie just kind of flew through my brain and it lost to the sands of time by rewatching it especially when we see the dude I think he's at like um what is he a laundromat or a cafe and he looks up and it's the the backdrop is this is taking place in the early 90s right around the start of the Gulf War so we see a scene where he's watching TV and we see like George Herbert Walker Bush kind of really unconvincingly describing oh the uh the war and insurgency in iraq and and we get we meet these interesting characters walter sobchak played by uh the great john goodman he's this kind of deranged ptsd uh vietnam veteran he's very short fuse quick to just to anger and start yelling and at one point later pulling out a gun in the middle of a bowling alley um but it's so funny to see his kind of reaction to this event you know he kind of sees this as sort of this cannot stand you know he's trying to kind of convince the dude that this is sort of like an act of warfare and the dude on the other hand is this sort of layabout you know protest era kind of burnout hippie who's just you know kind of just wants to just go with the flow you know he's he doesn't really he's he's mad but he doesn't really know what to do yeah he's mad and he has a strong feelings but he doesn't really know what to do and he kind of just wants to not get involved and then we get donnie who i love donnie in this he's sort of like an audience surrogate in this movie he's he's always just popping in being like what are you talking about what what nazi or whatever and walter just gets more and more frustrated (laughs) as the movie goes on. and then he's like well you know were were you listening he's like no i i was bowling did did you (laughs) know you know were you not paying attention like you know like this this is like what we're here for right like not not these random conversations we were supposed to go here for bowling right like i think walter goes to this for therapy bowling for therapy i think (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting walter takes you know also defines bowling in a very kind of black and white way in the sense that you know when he brings his ex-wife's dog and the dude points out why did you bring you, you know Cynthia the ex-wife why'd you bring her dog he's like you know why did you bring the dog bowling he's like I didn't bring it bowling I'm not gonna rent it shoes it's not gonna have a beer like you know and he <laughs> defines what for him bowling means right bowling yeah. is you know obviously you wear these rented shoes you you have a beer you play around you know etc and and there, there is a sort of you know in that moment he has a sort of 
canonized definition of this ritual of bowling. Yeah. And and who who participates and doesn't participate, right? Obviously, the dog doesn't participate because it's a dog. And for Walter, that's self-evident. But for someone else, just simply being present in the bowling alley means you are a bowler, right? Yeah. And that, that raises some interesting questions about what is simply being present enough or does one have to participate in an activity in order to, to yeah. you know, to be part of it. Well, mm -hmm. I was so surprised too, like watching it again too. I was surprised that Walter's character didn't like, he's such a pressure cooker and I'm surprised he didn't lash out at Jesus because Jesus was fucking, you know, put, put, playing with fire. And I was like, I'm surprised he didn't snap at that guy instead. Yeah, but was, he's a fucking patter ass man. Yeah, 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 that's like, true. You know, eight, eight year olds do. Like, just, you know, don't, you know, don't get wound up, you know, like. Yeah, we, and, we've and, talked about some movies that. with some good dialogue. This is a very quotable movie. This might be one of the most quotable movies of that we've done on this program because there's just so many little snippets of dialogue and and lines that are that have outlived this movie like you hear them over and over again in, in greater society and and i was watching this with my uh, fiance for the first time and she's never seen it but i was like catching myself hearing kind of lines in the movie that i've just said out loud in the course of like our relationship at certain moments like i probably said oh that really tied the room together or something unironically at some point because i was just thinking about the movie or or something of that but it yeah, really starts from the beginning, you know, you were talking about that, that moment where, you know, the dude gets assaulted in his home, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's some one in those, that's first sort of, what is it, two minute sequence? There's two very quotable moments that stand out for me. The first is obviously when the guy's like, where's the money? He's like, I don't know, but I'll have another look, right? He sticks his head. <laughs> yeah, and he sticks his head back in the toilet bowl. A little yeah. funny little bit. So, so there's there. that. I guess the other moment is like, you know, your wife owes money everywhere. It's like, you know, where's your wife? Oh yeah. Do you see a wedding ring? You know, the toilet seats up. Do you think I'm married? Like, yeah. <laughs> have you seen my place? You know, <laughs> and then finally, obviously the guy opens up his bag and it looks at the bowling ball and goes, what's this? And the guy's like, well, obviously. Drops it right on the tile golfer, too. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's that wonderful bit where like the, these two henchmen who are obviously clueless and only yeah. figure out that they've got the wrong well, dude. Like when, it's like Kirk Cobain. <laughs> right. Obviously, you know, which is that kind of 90s grunge kind of look, right? Like, mm -hmm. they only realize they've got the wrong dude when literally, like, he kind of really points it out that he's basically broke, unmarried, and whatever, right? Which you'd have sort of thought that if you were going to, you know, try and try and get money from some wealthy guy, the moment you drive up to their house, and it's a sort of dinky apartment out in the middle of nowhere it, you probably got the wrong place right and yeah. and i think the the filming of this also where everything's kind of filmed every time they're in the dude's property it's either filmed from the perspective of the toilet or let's say the bathroom that's next yeah, that's to true, the bath yeah. that's Still next to it, right or looking yeah. at the front door you know or or you know and it's that sort of thing where you know it makes that room feel very small because it's always filmed from that same kind of very small angle and, yeah, and it's filmed no through the door and that framing of the shot through the door makes the room feel smaller even though mm -hmm. we have no idea how how wide that room is on the other side of the door because you never see it in, in that way really and so after after of course this incident where the you know, the rug is peed on you know uh you know this this aggression cannot stand you know the you know dude decides that he has to go meet with the you know the man that he's been mixed up with to, to kind of receive something and it's kind of funny because the dude doesn't actually even seem to really know what he wants he's kind of spurred on by walter to get justice of some kind but what is justice in this case and he seems to just 
whether it's, you know, he's, he's cleaned his rug. Is it just a matter of, I don't know, pride, but you know, he decides to march over to meet uh, the very wealthy uh, big Lebowski. And we meet some other characters as well too. Of course, uh, uh, Lebowski is sort of a butler or caretaker played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's yeah, just Brad, so, Brad. yeah, Brad. Yeah. He's so funny in this movie. God, he's got so many silly, like great moments, like especially later with Tara Reid. It's, uh, it's his facial his wife, yeah. that, that make it, that make the character good. Like, like Brand's character, I don't think actually is that that great based on the dialogue, but it's the delivery, yeah. right? Yeah, it's that, that moment, that moment at the end, right? Like, oh, it's like who unites? Like he just uh, he makes he makes the character, you know? right? It's that moment at the end of that first meeting where he's like walking the dude out, the kind the rug, and he's like, "Oh, well, lovely to meet you." You know, yeah, he contrasts that meeting. Like, he's like, "How was your visit?" And you know, early yeah. that, that scene with him and the and you know the big is so funny because he's just like they're both just like miscommunication. He's just like, "Why are you here?" Like, what is this a charity? Like, do you want a yeah. handout? And he's just like, I don't know. And he's just like, what are you saying? And they're just having this like ridiculous yeah. back and forth. And I think it adds again to the theme of the movie because the dude, the, the big himself says like, you know, what do you think a man is Lebowski? And, and he asks him these kind of poignant questions. He's like, he's someone who tries to do right by others and do the. And I think like, you know, that the movie kind of plays around with that, maybe even towards the end of the movie, which we'll get to about, you know, what is the dude's philosophy? What does he believe in? And, and what is sort of the central code that he does follow. But uh, I love, God, I love Brand. He's so funny. And especially that late, that scene when the dude's walking out. And he gets, yeah, he picks up the rug. I love that. It's, it's so funny. And he's like, yeah, he's, he he's going to let me have the rug. He's walking out this and, massive and, but, no, but it's the, the facial expression when the dude meets Bunny for the first time. And she asks yeah. him to blow her, her toes, right? Yeah, I'll And give then you she's like, turns to him, like, and, and dead seriously, turns to him and says, look, I'll suck your cock for thousand dollars, and Brand like embarrassingly kind of laughs us off. Oh, you know this is our funny matriarch. You know, oh, hasn't she got this? <laughs> His face is so red. Humor? He's like strained. Yeah, yeah. And then she turns around and says, "You know, but Brand can't watch unless he pays an extra two hundred dollars, <laughs> right?" Which is like you know, and that then like rubs that salt in the wounds where he kind of yeah. thinks he saved face by making it into a joke, and then she like just just rubs his face into it and like you know it's like i gotta um, go to a bank (laughs) yeah it's like i'm gonna go find an atm like just sauntering out yeah god and 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 that's when we meet the nihilists for the first time because you know that's right yeah you know, played by Peter Stormare as the guy passed out in the, in the pool. That's right. That is, that is him. I was, I forgot that that's him right at the beginning of the movie. And he's just yeah. laying in the, he's laying in the pool with like a fucking uh, half submerged bottle of like Jack Daniels or whatever, right. like in the pool. Exactly. It's, God, it's so funny. Uh, and yeah, the dude's reactions as he hits the leaves are so funny, but he steals this rug. And it's actually, you know, that's a, that's another part of this movie is because he takes the rug that actually belonged to uh big's daughter, Maude. And that kind of kicks off her, kind of interaction with him of course they go back to play bowling and that's when we meet jesus or jesus quintada and oh my god an iconic character of course like following this movie um the jesus rules john totoro yeah actually created a sequel movie called the jesus rule but i I actually haven't seen i haven't seen that film i've heard it's uh, not as obviously not as good as the the big lebowski but it features a lot of the same cast and and producers and staff on that movie as well too uh but it's such a funny interaction because you get this like very long kind of almost quirky sensual scene where he's like licking the bowling ball and you know makes that smooth motion he's running that big 
purple velvet kind of 70s uh, roller skating like suit and he sinks the ball and it just it cuts back to Walter and the dude kind of watching from afar and the dude and Walter just punctures the air in the bubble where he's just like oh yeah you know he's, he was fun he's a he's a sex offender don't you realize and it's, it's it's so fucking funny yeah. and then he and comes is, over and, and is chatting with them it's just so ridiculous yeah. and there's a complete non-secretary with anything that's yeah yeah that out moment, of nowhere right fuck it eight-year-olds like, dude just, and it's little moments of that that actually kind of add a little bit of like you like Walter a bit more because, you know, he's this aggressive <laughs> asshole, but he's also like, you know, he's not a, he's not a pedophile. He's not like an abuser. Like, you know, they get these like moments or later when he's talking about, you know, uh, you know, Jeff uh, Lebowski's talking about the men who peed on his rug. And he's like, no, you can't call them that anymore. You know, they're Asian American. It's kind of funny that the most reactionary character in this movie, you know, someone who you would look at today is almost like an anti-maxer is an anti-masker is like, a, you know, you know, you got to use the proper term. You can't call him that word anymore. He's a little PC in that regard, which is yeah. kind of funny. It's like, <laughs> these little quirky character like moments with him or with his with his adherence to the Jewish faith, Jewish faith and resting on the day of Shabbos and his little kind of quirky, you know, kind of personality. It actually adds to a little bit of his likability. You're like, oh, I can kind of see maybe why the dude actually you, does you, enjoy it. You really care about Walter, them. like watching it again too. I really, really, I want, I really want to be Walter's friend actually. I, I want to like take care of him and heal him, you know? <laughs> but, but Yeah, he's an yeah, asshole, but he like, he cares about you and actually like checks in on you and like wants yeah, to but do that's the thing. you, which it, I think it, is good. I think that's one, you know, when you ask me, like, what is it that I like most about it is that even in their most simplistic form, the characters do have depth, the complicated yeah. characters, right? Yeah. Walter's mm -hmm. not just some burnt out veteran with PTSD, <laughs> right? Yeah. He's got layers. He has an ex-wife yeah. that he seemingly can't yeah, get he, over, he, right? He, he loves Donnie. Like, you would tell that he loves Donnie. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he doesn't uh, admit it. And yeah, he takes along with him, yeah. When he kind of gets in that fight with the dude, he's like, come on, Donnie, we're going to go play ball. He's like, you know, it's very like Mean Girls in high school. He's like, all right, got him going along for the ride. You, you can't sit with us. <laughs> or even when he goes and visits like the dudes. Oh my God, we were just talking about that. The whole sequence way at the beginning when the dude, you know, his landlord shows up and is like, you know, by the way, you owe me rent. Pays off way later in the movie when they're at the guy's little one man act show and, you know, Walter sh shows up and he's like dressed in like full suit and tie, like he's yeah. at like the opera or whatever. It's such a funny, uh, you know, and it kind of shows, again, his adherence to his character, you know, going to uh, an event with his buddy and actually taking the effort to dress up properly, not like anyone else would. So, you know, it's it's kind of funny to see that. But and we get it's such a great sequence when we meet the, the Jesus. And then it goes back to them, like polishing the fucking bowling ball. They're like aggressively like rubbing. <laughs> God, it's so. <laughs> but it, oh, but my it's, God. It, it's interesting that, you know, Jesus is sort of partner in the team, right? This guy called yeah. Liam, who like, again, is like totally okay with must sex know, offender. must know, yeah, his sex <laughs> offender past. And he must know because, you know, they, they explain in the movie that, you know, and Jesus Quintana has to disclose to everyone around him that he's a sex <laughs> offender, and you're right? Still unbelievably cocky. It's sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like, I'm going to fuck you in the ass. And he's just like, dude, yeah. you're well, like a sex offender. Yeah, I got to watch your language, yeah. man. Let me yeah. make a few calls, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, but then again, one can imagine that because he, you know, he's done six months in prison, that, you know, that might be a, a, a you know, whether that's a prior behavior or a learned behavior in order to protect himself while in prison, you know, it could be a, a defense mechanism for Jesus that mm -hmm. has then continued in the movie. But again, adds another layer to the movie, um, you know, and again, that, that, interaction between jesus and and walter where you know that when the when the bowling match is postponed he's like what the shit is this <laughs> you know i don't care you don't roll on saturday i fuck you on a wednesday like i don't care like you know 
um, but don't you bring any guns to the lane, right? Because I'll take it from you and I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll put it in your ass and I'll pull the trigger till it goes click. <laughs> you know, it's that wonderful, like, you know, hey, don't bring your, you know, I'll meet your aggression with my aggression, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's mad about Walter pulling out that gun and that's just a fucking funny moment when Walter just rips the gun out his again it adds to the surrealness of the universe because it's like in real life like you know walter they would have arrested him but you know all that really comes of it is like they get it cuts kind of a stern phone call he's like listen you can't be doing that at like these league events and it kind of shows like the the ethos between you know the dude himself and walter the dude is just sort of like come on let him like get away with it it's fine it's not a big deal his foot just went over the line and and walter's like you know like market you mark that and now you're in a, for a world of pain you know it's another great quotable line you just you just can't handle like any sort of indigression that just goes above like yeah, I think you know stepping on someone or something too. that but it's that thing with like you know where he point then points out it's like no this is bowling there are rules right you you know your mm-hmm. toe goes over the line that's a foul right and then again but then highlights his military past where it's like you know bowling has rules this is not the war you know vietnam there were no <laughs> rules like you know you know you know and and that kind of him being unable to escape from that kind of war war zone and that war mentality you know even in in civilian life is is interesting yeah and it's uh it's funny too because that's sort of what kicks off this next kind of part of this sort of big heist or big crime which is Walter is actually sort of, and it's kind of funny because the dude actually kind of catches on. The dude actually finds out like the entire, what we're going to find out is sort of the true events of the movie, basically like 20, 30, 30 minutes in the movie. He's like, I already kind of know what, what I think is happening. Like Bunny's in on it. She must've just taken off. You know, she's a young trophy wife went elsewhere and he, they, everyone kind of dismisses him, but he's actually right. Like the whole time, but nonetheless, Walter is convinced that there's something going on here and that they're convinced that bunny bunny's kidnapped and they're the you know these 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 thieves you know the 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 dude lebowski then rejoins with the big and kind of becomes this courier for them because they realize he's the only one who i can identify uh the men the associates of jackie treehorn who did this and are likely involved in the kidnapping uh, of bunny with these nihilists and so he's sort of now in the center of this whole weird crime universe and him and Walter, and well, mostly Walter, when they're driving, they're about to throw the money. They're doing this kind of pass off where they're going to pass the money and and get stuff back. You know, Walter, just, he's, you know, the dude opens up the trunk and finds it's a bunch of dirty laundry. He's like, no, we're going to send in a ringer. So we're going to like walk away with the money. You know, it's a classic little trope of like crime noirs and stuff like that. Like, oh, we're going to be the ones who actually like pull off the heist in the middle of the heist. And it's a little throwback to that sort of style. But, you know, court totally goes awry. They pull over and, cra- and at the same time that happens, like they like the car pulls over, crash. A lot of moment. The car takes a beating in this goddamn movie, especially, you know, all the way at the end when it's completely torched. <laughs> oh, but the move, the car is just getting wrecked and and they get out and the, the fucking the nihilists drive off in their motorcycles. The dude's running down the street like, yeah, I got your money. Give it back. And, you know, everything's now gone totally crazy and totally awry yeah and so of course things don't go well but the, the dude and walter and, and donnie they go back they're, they're doing some bowling and uh it's funny because as the story progresses we get walter and the dude just like kind of bantering back and forth about shit and donnie has no idea he's just along for the ride he's like what are you talking about he's like are they were they were that were they nazis <laughs> he's just like no no they're nihilists or whatever and uh, we get that great little poignant line from walter he's like He's like, you know, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, but at least they had an ethos, you know, <laughs> you know, he's so offended by this idea of these like men with no discernible ideology uh, other than, you know, their own behavior, which is seemingly um, going against their which, own sort of nihilistic ideology. Which is interesting because the dude kind of 
makes that point early on as well when he sees you know Uli passed out in the in the pool right and he's like oh he's a nihilist huh well must be exhausting right like (laughs) like a sort of like not having an ethos to follow or or you know let's say declining all all ethos right as as like you know that must be tiring right to constantly be in rejection of everything which also speaks somewhat to the dude's philosophy where there must be an ethos because it's his ethos is not an absence of of ethos really it's it there has to be some sort of direction there because of that comment and then the nihilist is you know eternal um obsession with cutting off penises right you know Uh, And that later leads us to that moment where the dude is then at home again. You know, the dude's always trying to lounge at home and people keep, God damn it, people keep interrupting him and breaking in. You he's know, he's asleep like, on his carpet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's laying on his carpet. And I love that when he, I love the moments in his apartment, like when he's like getting called back by the big and he's sort of doing this little like feng shui, not feng shui, like chai, tai chi, tai like chi kind of dance. He's holding like the, the white Russian. He gets progressively more and more like kind of intoxicated as this movie goes on. He's just thinking <laughs> into his, his white Russians, his little his little liquor cabinet with his one bottle of Kahlua, one bottle of vodka and his like half and half <laughs> that now has gone bad at the end of the movie. He's like sniffs it. He's like, it's like the same one we see earlier at the start. And, uh, you know, he gets, I love, I love how he sets up that little like nailed in wooden bar at the front of his door and puts the chair to like prevent it from being open and just they open it the other way and the chair just falls down a nice little encapsulation of his character just like well-intentioned trying to kind of thinks he sort of got things in control and really doesn't things are just totally out of his control which is really like the movie itself and he's out he of his element of, he's out of his element you know donnie's not out of his element he's out of his element but uh, we <laughs> the dude meets maud uh Lebowski, who's this artist you know he's walking into this like big studio and he, you get this like her swinging overhead like and yeah. almost like naked undressed and like flinging paint everywhere and and lands you know she's really kind of a confluence i think carolee you know she's she's based on on a famous artist that carolee uh, schneeman who actually like also did art very similarly but also has a little bit of like yoko to her as well to a little a little flavor there and her character julianne Moore, when she when she's introduced is so funny because she is like so much like a, a throwback to like these noir characters this could be sort of like deeper voice like transatlantic accent sultry women you know and her her little interactions with jeff or so or with with uh with the dude are so funny because like she's certain you know they're having like a back and forth and it's sort of driving the plot but the dude is sort of like not really there he's just like oh you got like a uh, liquor and he just kind of starts making himself a little concoction while she's like yes the dude so you're probably wondering about your rug but it's kind of funny that she keeps even though the dude is sort of fixated solely on this rug situation you know, she jumps back to the rug, but she's sort of continuing the story along. It's like, oh, yeah, your rug. I know you're so worried about that or whatever. And, you know, she puts in the tape of uh, we find out that Bunny was actually involved with Jackie Treehorn as Jackie Treehorn's a pornographer. And the Bunny actually had started this film a little. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Boogie Nights, you know, of uh, that sort yeah. of element of it, both in the visual style of the movie. But that when they're showing this sort of throwback to like this, like old classic, I guess it's supposed to be like an early 90s porno tape. And I love that later with Jackie Treehorn where he's like, you know, times have changed now in the adult video industry. You know, we can't, uh, we had to cut back on things like plot and story and, and feelings. And then when, when, when he's like, you know, the future of porn is, is electronic, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the dude just replies, it's like, well, say what you will, but I still masturbate manually. And yeah, God, it's so and, funny. And further highlights that point where the dude is like a man in his own time, right? He's not he's not modernizing for anyone, right? Then it's that and and that kind of you know um hesitation to to and trepidation for like 
modernization, right? Mm. He's like, no, I am me and I'm very comfortable with me and I'm going to remain me, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And because they see this tape and they realize, oh, Bunny actually is involved with Jackie Drew Horn, that convinces her and then, you know, by proxy him that she most likely was involved with the money and, and the abduction and herself, that she's not so much a victim as, as what is seen. So, you know, she asks for dude's help to actually recover the money and sort of get involved in this whole scheme more thoroughly uh, as the dude is just sort of like, doesn't really care that much. He just wants his, you know, he just misses the rug, which really tied the room together. Um, of course, later, you know, the dude, they, they, they're, they're the confront, he's confronted for his failure to deliver the ransom uh, by the nihilists who identify themselves as the kidnappers. And it's such a funny moment where we're like, they're playing like the crowd music and you just see them appear and God, they're so funny. I, I love, uh, I love Peter Stromare. He's such a good actor and he's been so. Yeah, he can uh, do anything. And Flea, Flea as well too. Flea plays, uh, is it Kiefer or one of the nihilists too? Or he's like, I'm going to fuck you in the ass. And he's like swinging the fucking bag around. And I love the scene of the diner when they're, it's in this obnoxious diner later in the movie when they're, you can even see the menus are like this like printed out photograph stack of pancakes and they're, they're looking at it. And, and uh, what is it? Franz's girlfriend is Amy Mann. You know, she's there and, and she, they're asking what they want. They're like, yeah, lingonberry pancakes or whatever. And they're just like going back and forth. And she's uh, then the woman who's missing the toe. Right. So yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, She's and, the one. Yeah. And then yeah. which Walter points out is like, it's not hard to get a toe, right? I can get a toe by this afternoon. Like, you know, <laughs> well, what are you worried about? It's like, well, you know, it was obviously the green nail polish is like what you couldn't have thought of that, you know, you get a toe and you apply some green nail polish to it. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, anyway, Walter kind of gets it right. He's like, you know, I, you don't, you, you think you can't get a toe? I can get you a toe, have it polished by like 3 p.m. It's like, yeah. Toe. And uh, the dude's car is also stolen as well, too. That's, that's another point that comes up because they have the money. They think they have the money. They've swapped the ringer and now the car is gone. All the money's gone. The dude is then set off to try to find the car. He does recover the car. The car's been found. It's all trashed up. And when he opens it up and sits down, he finds that it stinks because likely someone had, had used it as a toilet. But the dude then takes off. And um, but of course, he's then uh, he meets with the big again. He's kind of pulled into this car abruptly and uh, finds out that, you know, the big is like, what the hell's going on? You know, you're fucking this up. Like, uh, we're trying to, like, pass the money on. You couldn't do that. He's like, oh, there's a lot of ins, a lot of outs. You know, he's like, I love how the dude's always like talking of other people in the story about how complex it actually is. He's like, no, no, no. Like, you don't understand. There's new characters involved. New things have been new things have come to light. And as he's saying that as he's kind of lounged back in this car, he's always in various lounge positions with his belly sticking out and like half like legs open and splayed out, like always having a very, uh, very comfy time in this. Uh, but, uh, you know, the dude finds his car, but also finds that in his car, um, he actually has this this sheet of paper with this uh this name written on it, Larry Sellers, finding out there's been home homework stuff in the scene. And this starts a whole other weird little snippet of the movie where <laughs> Walter is like, finds out that this is actually belongs to this like 15 year old kid who obviously he says must have pocketed the money and stolen and stolen the money. And, and, uh, they then go think they then go to confront Larry at his home. And God, this whole sequence is just, it's probably the funniest like moment of the movie or like one of the funniest moments where they, they show up and they, they go in the house and they see like the man and the, the dad of the family's in like an iron lung or whatever. And they're kind of just awkwardly sitting in the house. It's like, Oh, we're here to speak with Larry. And you know, the young Larry seller shows up and that's when things just totally go all completely, you know, 
you know, out of control and we get that great line where walter's like this is what happens when you try to fuck a man in the ass or whatever but in famously watching that on tv dub he says this is what happens when you try to find a stranger in the alps which i always love that line yeah, um, exactly makes That's no exactly. sense you know it's dubbed in but it actually has no context and sense at all in the movie and, and then walt walter loses his mind when he's smashing the hell out of that sports car it's such a great moment where he's just he's screaming and, and beating the shit out of it and all the lights are turning on and then and we then get turns some this- it's some, some guy running car. out. Yes, yeah, some other guy's car just runs out, <laughs> screaming and and yelling. Uh, so that kind of goes completely, uh, completely awry. The dude, the dude, the dude heads home and actually mods there, and she's like, "Make love to me." Takes off her robe. Her and her and uh, him and him and Mod have sex, and you know they're kind of post coital bliss, laying in bed. He's and he, the dude actually reveals a little bit about his backstory because we don't really know much about him. Like we know a little bit about you know when he likes his hobbies and stuff, but he talks a little bit about his own kind of background is being involved in sort of like student protests on campus you know he actually has some education he's been on college but as a dropout or some kind of a layabout doesn't remember anything talks about you know his acid flashbacks he was involved with uh he says he was involved as a roadie with metallica but that they're like a bunch of assholes and actually uh i was reading that metallica like loved that kind of part of the movie and they i don't know if they've done that in the shows but they said like they want to incorporate that scene into their live shows after seeing it because they like to do a lot of that stuff with some of their productions and a lot of uh one of the interesting bits is that you know that in that sequence is he mentions that he was one of the writers of the the original park huron statement you know he you know but but he had nothing to do with this you know redacted final version that was ultimately disseminated right but it's again it's an interesting bit in sort of cinematic universe right where because he refers to the chicago seven and if we watch that that new movie you know it's the you know the 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 characters he names are then played in this other movie you know based on the the true story by by sasha baron you know eddie redmayne and 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 it's that kind of you know that that's a nice linkage of like fact and fiction in this you know where he's like well you know there were these people that i knew right and i was involved in university but they took it in a way that i'm now distancing myself from right and and yeah that that that's an interesting and nice sort of nice touch, I suppose. And Maude is just sitting there going, oh, I just want to get pregnant. Right? Yeah, you know, and she kind of realizes, like, maybe I made a mistake. You know, he's, like, going off, like, oh, what are your hobbies? You're like, he's, like, oh, he's kind of telling this, like, sad sex story. She's kind of like, uh-huh. But, yeah, then she's just totally fixated on her, as the dude points out, her yoga pose is saying, oh, you know, I'm trying to <laughs> trying to conceive. You know, we find out the reason she's adamant he goes to the doctor because it's to find out that he's actually a suitable uh, surrogate for this uh this baby that's now going to be part of the movie. And, you know, I love, well, we'll get to the end, but uh, I also forgot to mention when, when the dude, you know, visits Jackie Treehorn and kind of confronts him and is then, uh, is then drugged. I love that moment where it's so fun. It's probably the, it's that part to laugh in this movie, but when Jackie Treehorn's going to the bathroom, he kind of scribbles something on a sheet of paper and takes off. And the dude's like, what is, what is it? Is it the information to lead me to the money? And he, the dude runs up and he goes to stencil on the fucking the, the notepad. And it's just like this like generic cartoon character with like a giant dick. And he's just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just runs like, off. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of like folds it up, like puts it in his pocket. I think later when the dude's arrested, like they pull out his wallet, they pull out this like, membership for like a grocery store card and they pull out like that little the paper with a dong on it. it's so fucking funny like you, you think it's gonna be some kind of little red herring a little bit of info or something and then it's just this it's literally like a red herring it's literally just like a you just doodled a cock yeah. on a sheet of paper and it's those those touches where they break the fourth wall right that they, yeah. they're like you know you're they're, they're hoping that you're watching intently and trying to 
follow the story, right? And then they're just like, yeah, we're going to mess with you while, we're, while you're doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's totally yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a not, it's a, it's those moments that remind you this is still very much like a, a surreal comedy. It's not a, as straightforward of a, you know, crime thriller as you really think it's going to be. And there's really going to be like no, you know, serious resolution. And uh, it even kind of shows the characters themselves. Like they kind of put on this like act of being more severe or, or knowing more than they do, but they really don't. They know just as much as the dude. The dude doesn't even seem to know anything that's going on either. The dude is actually the one who actually probably knows the most, but he's, he's always trying to convince people that, you know, there's a lot more complexity to what's going on and no one really seems to care. They're just sort of like going with the flow. And, and like when he's talking to that Malibu police officer and he, he throws the mug at him, gets yeah. him in the face. It's so crazy. Oh my God. But and, that's uh, further pointed out when he meets the other PI who points yeah. out to him, is like, I love what you're doing, playing the one side to the other and like yeah. telling them all <laughs> these overcomplicated stories when like, you know, it's really not like, I love He's sort of a style, character in his man. own universe too. He's like doing this whole investigation on the side. He's just like, I'm a big fan. The dude's like, what the, who the hell are you, man? Like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Kind of just blows him off. But he's this character, you see him foreboding. He's like following the dude around in this like a blue Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, it turns out like a lot of the moments in this movie, it's just sort of like for not it's just this strange character who's just sort of following around and you know he's now creeping on the dude and trying to get himself more involved and tangled into this plot and uh of course though after he meets mod again they sleep together the dude actually kind of fight figures it all out it's the little kaiser soze dropping the mug moment when the dude actually you know has a moment of genuine genius kind of actually kind of puts together all the details finding out that of course that you know that Bonnie has skipped town that there actually is no kidnapping and that the nihilists have actually faked this to try to extort money from the big, but also notes that the big himself, which drew the money from the family trust, but actually swapped it out. So he kept the money himself, filled the suitcases with, I think it was his phone books. And so when they did the toss off with the ringer, they actually just gave away a ringer for a ringer. They, there was no money involved at all. So none of this, nothing that's happened in this movie really makes any sense or it doesn't even matters because there was no money involved. The big was happy to just have his wife be, wife be killed or whatever. It had no care whatsoever. Just wanted to get away with having his wife gone. Um, his wife takes off as well too. And everyone else is kind of just left to deal with the pieces, particularly the nihilists who have faked stages, elaborate kidnapping that doesn't actually matter. And then we get that great final confrontation where they're at the bowling alley and the dude and Walter and Donnie so walk out and his car is just completely torched and on fire. And the, the nihilists are there for the final <laughs> confrontation. You know, and it's it's played for laughs, but it is kind of violent though. Like the dude, like or Walter whips the bowling ball and like seemingly like, breaks the guy's ribs and he's on the which ground. Which I'm pretty and... sure is the only time we also see Walter do anything with a bowling ball. Yeah. Right? I think you so, know, yeah. the only time he bowls the bowling balls when he throws it at this other yeah. guy. And we always this... see Donnie. It's always Donnie's perspective, and he's always nailing yeah. it and they don't catch it. And then of course the end, he he almost nails it and just misses the one. It's kind of a little bit of a foreboding, foreshadowing, because you know, this is a moment where Donnie dies he has a heart attack and dies it's sort of like maybe yeah. his time's yeah. up in that yeah. regard he's always nailing it everything's going fine and then that one moment a little snippet that maybe something isn't going to go fine for him but uh the, the walter also bites off the guy's ear it's quite bloody and brutal in that moment he, like throws the whips the ear yeah, up we, in the we air we can see we didn't see reservoir dogs yeah <laughs> and then you have you know this bit where the dude is trying to bribe the other guys like, yeah the yeah they're dollars. like okay we'll just take give us money dog. like we'll We'll just take whatever's in your wallet because they're, they're just like, no, man, there's no money. We don't have any money. We were all set up. There's no there's nothing here. And then I also kind of realizing that they're fucked 
too. And they're just like, okay, well, just give us the cash in your pockets. And they're like, what? Well, there's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's so funny. Like, they're clearly not prepared to get in this fight, even though, like, you know, the guy pulls out a fucking samurai sword and he's like whipping it around. And, you know, the other guy's like, I'll fuck you. I'll fuck you. He's like swinging the thing around and the dude's swinging like a fucking bowling ball around. And, uh, you know, they're able to to fight them off and they kind of, uh, they beat them off. But, you know, during the scuttle, you know, Donnie's leaning over and it's such a great moment. They run over like, has Donnie been shot? And they're like, no, he just had a heart attack. And he's just like, you know, and, and we find out, of course, uh, Donnie has passed away. And, you know, we get that great scene where Walter and, and the dude are, are at this sort of law office, I guess, um, at, you know, to get to read, the, read over his will and and to, uh, you know, to, to get his uh, cremated remains. And it's such a great moment where he's like, uh, talking about okay it'll cost you 180 dollars and like walter's like oh that's too much money like just because our friends die doesn't mean we need to be uh squeezed like this and yeah. you know what's the cheapest receptacle you have he's like oh um is there a shoe store nearby and or no is there, like a store nearby and like it cuts them on that beautiful cliffside right off the ocean where they're walking with a coffee mug like a Folgers coffee mug <laughs> of uh of uh of his remains and that seems cool because it really it's really bright and it really pops like the, the the coffee mug it's such a beautiful moment when he's going out and it actually looks quite beautiful off the the ocean talks a little bit about donnie like we don't really know much about him like you know we know obviously he loves bowling and he's a friend of theirs but like he talks about oh donnie loves like he loved surfing and it's like that never really comes up in the movie so there's a little bit more to donnie that we know of and i think like donnie sort of acts like a, a surrogate for the audience in this film and it's telling that in his death at the end the movie just kind of ends the characters really have nothing left to do now that donnie's gone and it's sort of like a little nod to the you know this movie being about not just these quirky slice of life characters but about us about the audience watching and that once you know that's done there's nothing the story's been told there's nothing left for us to, left to see it's sort of it sort of ends and it's 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 agreeable while walter again kind of conflates with vietnam talks about losing his friends at caisson and then dumps the coffee off the cliff and blows back and gets the dude all all over his face but we have that kind of little like i, I kind of pulled on my heartstrings a bit where you know walter and the dude kind of embrace you know they've kind of gone through this tragedy together and you know walter is always kind of stuffing his emotions and the, the dude's going off on him like you're such an idiot you. walter and kind of mad at him and the walter's kind of like apologizing like i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry you know you can kind of tell that maybe he's someone who's had interactions with other people in his life the same way and has kind of pushed them away because of his own trauma from vietnam and his own quick quickness to anger and you know kind of uh stupidity at times but you know they have that kind of little sentimental moment where they hug and the dude i love he's kind of squished he kind of just goes with his arm he's like like that <laughs> he's just kind of like all right and they're like ah oh, fuck it let's go bowling and they they head off to go uh to go bowling and you know they're, they're heading back to go bowling and the dude once again runs into uh this sort of cowboy this sort of mystical we don't really know if he's real or not in the in the scope of the universe but he shows up and i you know he's like i love your style dude and he, but at the end you know he asks him sort of about like what's next you know uh, for you and he's like oh you know like what 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 did what do you think and you know the dude sort of gives off that great line he's like the dude the dude abides and you know walks away and <laughs> he's like the dude abides and it kind of cuts it brings us back to that whole idea of like what is a man you know and i think as as our, our narrator kind of tells us off you know a man is someone who who does have some sort of ethos some sort of code and you know while the movie is mostly uh the dude kind of going about things with seemingly no care and no real interest the end we find out his interest is just keeping on, keeping cool, and just being okay with other people and, and their sort of personalities and just letting things go and, and you know, understanding that he has to coexist with, with everyone and, and, to, and, you know, everyone has their own 
has her own code and it's sort of it's so so funny and weird at the end he's like oh i'm, I'm feeling pretty happy that there's people out there like the dude you know watching over us a little and he's like and then there's a great fourth wall moment at the end he's like oh what did you think of the movie he's like i thought it was sad when donnie had to go and he's like oh but i'm happy to know there's a little lebowski on the way and you're just like what the hell am i watching and and then the movie comes to an end oh my god it's it's so it's so crazy and i think um re-watching this in particular like it's really all about the characters in this they just feel there's, so there's, there's not really another film like big lebowski i think even if you no. watch like burn after reading your hail caesar i mean it's nothing quite like no big lebowski. yeah similar style certainly but uh not so much the characters themselves and just the way they feel and i love the soundtrack of this movie and especially like there's so many great great songs you know, clear, hate the Eagles, man. yeah and we get you know that he's, they're playing the hotel california he's in the taxi cab like, i fucking hate the eagles man and you know it pisses off the, yeah. the cab driver um some great scores especially the beginning with with uh kicking us off with uh the bob dylan um some of the some of his music's in it the man and me and um, some great, a lot of great throwback, like 60s, 70s rock jams, and even a bit of, uh, you know, other other music as well, too, like the German nihilists, of course, have that kind of uh, techno pop kraut rock sort of style uh, to their craft work sort of style to their music and it's very kind of like a electronic you know the when they pull out that the lp like the autobahn it's so funny like there's so many funny music mm. nods and it it feels very like la as well too like it's very like um you know some 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 covers with uh the hotel california but the gypsy kings has sort of like a little bit of a latin flair and we get like the the viva las vegas and oye como va like a lot of nods to sort of western you know, it's classic 70s Californian uh, aesthetic. And that's, yeah, that's the big Lebowski. This movie came out um, in 98. Um, it did, you know, it had a budget just above $15 million. So nothing too crazy, but would go on to gross uh, 46 million worldwide. So the movie did actually pretty good uh, considering its its budget. Um, when it came out, it was actually fairly popular. Not, you know, some people said that this is a cult movie. So it came out, people hated it. Not really so much. Like people really actually dug this movie when it came out. A lot of people saw it as sort of another, you know, a good succeeding movie to, to Fargo and sort of, again, this sort of kind of goofy Western sort of uh, noir satire, uh, sort of like this crime plot with all these mistaken characters and identities as, as being the driving plot device. Um, although some people weren't as positive in the, into the characters. This movie, of course, has gone on to really like, become a massive cult sensation and like even more so than i think movies like fargo and and other coen brothers works are are, are you know our brother where thou like i think this movie above all else has kind of outlived them like i think if you ask people about their favorite coen brothers movies or if you showed them a bunch of movies that they've made you know you'll probably get a lot of people say like, oh i love fargo i love you know um no, no country, country for, for Men or something yeah but i think a lot of people would be like oh i love the big lebowski what a funny movie and it's a movie that so many people have been drawn to and it's 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 Still to this day, like a huge success. There's been a whole movement of a philosophy called Dudism, which is based off the tenets of the dude, kind of like a mix of like Taoism. And there's a lot of people who cosplay as the dude and kind of try to like base their whole um, persona on him. And in, in Louisville, Kentucky, there's an annual Lebowski festival. And I've I saw like a, a video or documentary about it. Like everyone showed people show up with like dressed like the the characters from the movie and they talk about bowling and they have like a big party and even like some of the cast and, and people from the movie, like Jeff Bridges himself and, and Julie and Julianne Moore and, 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 and John Goodman and stuff have showed up at these events. It's kind of like a little Comic-Con in of itself, a little, uh, it's like with Star Wars and stuff, these movies have this whole expanded universe and nerds who go and visit them. It's sort of uh, like last week we talked about movies you watched. I mentioned, I watched like um, 
um, Hail to the Deadites, which is like a fan movie about Evil Dead fans and like how, you know, some of them are so wild, like they just collect every single little bit of Evil Dead um, and nostalgia and, and property. And there's like people like that with the Big Lebesque. They're just very into this entire universe. Um, and there's also, of course, a, you know, I guess like an unofficial sequel. I guess the, I guess it is a sequel. Like um, John Totoro started and directed his follow-up movie um, to, to, to this, um, what was it called? The Jesus, uh, roles, the Jesus yeah. roles. Yeah. The Jesus roles, which is sort of, um, again, it, it's sort of yeah. based on like, I think like a, I think like a, a French film. I, think I, think it's the, yeah. like, I, I haven't seen it either, but I, my understanding is that it's the, basically the backstory of, of Jesus, uh, Quintana. Yeah. I don't know whether it's sequel, but more uh, is the right term or maybe spinoff is more the, the, the right way to see it because it, it it's set in kind of the same universe but but it yeah it's more about you know understanding Jesus Quintana's kind of you know character a bit better and, and yeah building on that which which I think is one of the reasons why this reception wasn't as positive because I think people were expecting yeah the big Lebowski right whereas this is rather a, a, a character study of Jesus Quintana which is not exactly what I think a lot of people wanted or or were expecting I think a lot of people just wanted a sequel to that movie above all else and yeah and I think that spinoff film while there were some people who were really drawn to it and, and really dug it I think uh overall it, it wasn't as big of a drive as say the big Lebowski and I think that's why you kind of brought up Curtis like that movie really feels like it kind of exists in its own universe like there really hasn't been a movie that's come out since then that feels just like that film in particular but i think that's also why it's easier to be to have a cult following because yeah. the other films are also not necessarily more serious films but some of them are pretty heavy going like it's not as like no control man yeah. yeah it's not a you know this is you know this is a kind of you can you can re-watch it you know kind of you know, uh, even with it, the black humor, you could feel good at this. At yeah, end, you know, and 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 even other comedies like Hail Caesar, right? Hail Caesar's kind of overarching narrative isn't as coherent. You know, it's mm. mainly a kind of throwback to 1920s cinema yeah. with its with its very. You might not scenes. get this is ordinariness with black black big Lebowski, which I don't think you get with like if you're a big cinephile, you know, you you'll really appreciate Hail Caesar. But if you're just an ordinary guy, you might not appreciate all the mm. jokes and. Yeah, you know, Whereas like, Big Lebowski is more for everyone, I think. Yeah, in that way, and and I think also, you know, like it, it shows what what it does show within you know the Big Lebowski as well, but also when we look at other films in the sort of Coen Brothers canon, like Hail Caesar, and it, they do try and situate their films in the kind of local context or milieu, right? You know, you have this wonderful thing with in Hail Caesar where where George Clooney's character is debating with Walter Benjamin about the production of culture and what that all means, right? You know, in this kind of, you know, 20s and 30s kind of socialist culture critics, you know, and, you, you know, and, and him then being convinced from sort of Marxist theory that he's being oppressed as a, as a, as a, as an actor, right? And that, you know, he shouldn't be, you know, owned by the studio, but rather he should be paid as an actor, right, as a sort of seize the means of production, which then ultimately leads to the situation, the way it plays out to the situation in Hollywood now where the studios don't really have the power. It's the actors who get paid millions and whatever. So it's that interesting, you know, how they point that yeah. back into the future. Right. But it, in the Big Lebowski as well, where, you know, you were saying about how it's got a very sort of L.A. feel. It's got that feel of like where it is, when it is 
who's in it. Like you can, you know, whilst it's a sort of fictional universe and, and it, it does very much feel like they've got all the, the contact points with the, the locale where it's set very right. And, and I think that's when mm. they can play with Sam Elliott's character, whether he's real or not real and yeah. those sort of things, you know, because they've got those, those local connections um, so right. And I think that makes it rewatchable because you watch it for, you know, that argument with the taxi driver about the Eagles. And he's like, well, if you don't like the Eagles, get the fuck out of my cab, you know, like, <laughs> like you know, yeah. and then he throws him out. Like, yeah, I think you, I think you really did a great job of describing the appeal of the movie. Like it, it's certainly a movie that I think this movie can be, you know, rewatching it. It's, a, it's such a well-shot, well-filmed film, and it looks so good. And I think there's a lot to get from it as like a someone who's a, you know, someone who loves cinema as an art form. But again, I, I know a lot of people who are like just watch movies as entertainment who love this movie because it's just so it's so quotable, it's so goofy, it's so it doesn't take itself overtly seriously, and it has so many just funny, straightforward, solid comedy, uh, you know, bits to it. And but otherwise, like the movie does have a lot more going for it. And I love again, this movie injects like a lot of political and cultural philosophy into it. Like I think like the Coen brothers, I wouldn't say they make like overtly political films, but I think all of their films, especially stuff like Inherent Vice, like they add a lot of that sort of political intrigue and kind of to it. And we see that again with the, the dude, he's sort of this layabout hippie, but he doesn't really seem to have any driving ethos and urge to protest and stuff anymore. You can tell it's been like burned out of him based on drugs and sex and everything else. The the excesses of that era, the summer of the love and how a lot of people that were drawn to that really kind of fell into excess, but didn't really make much themselves as like cultural power and stuff like that. And I think, uh, you know, we see the dude like taught rag on like fascists and like the cops involved. And, you know, he, we, we see him and I love that moment when they talk a little bit about like Lenin and I think the dude, was it the dude brings up a Lenin quote? And then like Donnie's like, who's that? No, no, no. Donnie brings up a Lenin quote, you know? Oh yeah. yeah you know, and then he's like, so oh, I am the walrus. walrus. <laughs> yeah. I had the walrus. And then, um, and then, you know, but Walter corrects him and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and uses like, you know, Lenin's full name to like yeah yeah it's that, such a you know? again it's such a weird moment like you know Walter there's so much more going on with Walter than like kind of meets the eye and overall like I think this movie like it's just it's just got so many great moments like that of course I was gonna I was gonna talk a little bit about like the release like this movie of course was released on DVD also a 10th anniversary edition I was gonna show I, I was looking around my room because I actually have this movie um, I have this on DVD I have like the anniversary collection but uh, I couldn't find it I think I I think I took it out in preparation of the pod put it somewhere and now it's probably lost i'll find it in like six months <laughs> it'll probably show up right after the pod is that is that the one with the yellow case yeah the one with the yellow case yeah, yeah. that's the one i have that's this one the, the yeah that, the- that 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 looks that looks like the one i have yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's a lot of fun and also this is really recently released on uh on blue of course on blu-ray but on 4k uh there's like a 4k version like for 20th anniversary i've heard that one looks really good particularly like some of the shots in it really pop so i've been slowly gathering some of those for my collection so i think that's going to be one i'll have to uh to pick up let's talk i guess overall i mean let's let's wrap things up on this film like and, t- and kind of get into sort of what we thought about it in our ratings curtis why don't you uh kick us off what were your thoughts and overall kind of take away from yeah the so it was really it was really great re-watching it too i hadn't watched in a while too obviously so much to enjoy too and there's things i noticed a lot more this time too i, I cared a lot more about walter watching it like a, after for a second viewing yeah just a lot of the kind of was like ptsd too and a lot of the kind of subtle moments too and just kind of a lot of the red herrings you notice a lot more too so that was kind of fun to watch again too and obviously it's great you know in terms of the black humor we see that kind of imprint in later films too in uh hail caesar and and burn after reading as i mentioned too 
also a lot of kind of like those scenes too where i think the coen brothers like to intentionally kind of fuck with you and like throw you off too we, we get that in uh you know no country for old men too there's that coin toss scene too it seems like a scene that would just kind of like why they put that in there but then you look back back on it and there's so much yeah. depth and layers there like lawrence said too just with all the kind of layers to it too and just complexity too <laughs> and it becomes this kind of really important scene something so so ordinary and so simple too I think that's what the Coen brothers did really well. So I really like this film. This is, uh, I think this is one of their best comedy works, uh, four out of five uh, for me. What did you think, Lawrence? Well, you know, this is one of my favorite films. I, I do think, it, you know, it's a five, uh, you know, five out of five if we have to go home numbers, you know, four and a half if one has to be picky, you know, what is, what is the perfect movie? You know, we don't need to get into that. But I, I love this movie. I think one of the reasons is also the movie grows with you. So every time I rewatch it and I, I, I have a sort of yearly viewing, I just I will watch this movie at least once a year. I just, you know, every time you rewatch it, you, you pick up something new. The characters, you know, kind of get get highlighted in a, in a different way. Um, I think, as, as Curtis was saying, over time, I've I've kind of got more empathy for, for Walter and you see these these different layers that, that come to him where he, he really seems to yeah. struggle with letting things go. And, you know, that's the thing that, that, you know, the dude points out to him at the end where he's like, you, you know, you can't seem to ever let anything go, you know, when it, when it's Wal when it's Donnie's, you know, funeral. Yeah. And, and it's that kind of, which makes them the perfect kind of duo, right? They are so radically different, but seem to, really appreciate the, the uniqueness of each individual, right? You can feel that there is a very deep appreciation for Walter from the dude, but also for the dude from Walter, right? There, That is a, a, a true friendship that maybe on the face of things doesn't make any sense. And maybe, you know, the reason for their friendship in a way is also left quite ambiguous. It's not really explored, but nonetheless, they seem to be able to transcend potentially pe petty differences, these political things or, or their experiences and actually just connect on that interpersonal level, you know, so best exhibited by their shared love of beer and bowling. Bowling yeah. is solidarity. <laughs> what did you think, John? Uh, yeah, like I, I didn't go a five. I went four and a half and I'm maybe I'd kind of fit right between four and a half, five. Like I think I, I do think this is an incredible film, but I think to some extent, like I, I because it's so detached, so cold, uh, it, it's just so layabout. Like I think like there's a bit of that that I have a hard time really getting into. Yeah. Like I think I think like to me, like something like Fargo has like more of like an emotional heart to it that I kind of connect with a little bit yeah. more. For me, maybe. I connect to, I, I connect the most with No Country for All Men, but I mean, maybe it's unfair to compare those, but I you know it's, it's a great movie though. Yeah, but I think I think Lawrence really brought it out, which is, this is a movie really made for rewatch. Like I think a lot of people actually watching this for the first time because this movie's been hyped up. Like I watched, you know, I was kind of hyping up a bit when I was watching with my fiance and she was sort of like, you know, it was good, but like really wasn't my thing. But I'm like, I kind of feel like I kind of had a bit of that too the first time I watched it. But when you rewatch it, you just see so many, how many things are set up at the beginning of this movie, how much is actually already revealed at the start of the movie, if you're really paying attention. And I think like above all else, like the Coen brothers and especially in this movie in particular, do such a great job at kind of layering in this, these kind of milieu of kind of varied characters of these little kind of moments that, that really make them shine and, and add a little bit to their, their flavor and history. And this whole overall screwball kind of uh, noir thriller crime, you know, backdrop to it just it really helps to make it pop like i think um you know it, it makes it makes it so engaging and I, I we got a good credit of course to roger deakins who's one of the best cinematographers working today and i think his work in this movie like this might be 
out of the Coen Brothers works. This might be like their best shot movie. Like it just looks so good. So incredible. Like there's so many great um, aesthetic colors and stuff like that. A lot of like kind of bright, sunny LA style colors, but then we get scenes with like Walter and the dude driving at night. And it's like, we get these like kind of darker shades and shadows shadowing in on them. There's, this is a movie that would make really good. I haven't watched it like 4k, but I think like, if you have like HDR, this would probably pop really good. Just a lot of really great range of lighting and, and stuff done in this movie. And I, I think rewatching it, like I was really drawn to sort of the politics of this movie. Like this, this is a movie that doesn't feel overtly political, but there's just so many nods, like almost every like five minutes, there's a like, reference to politics or, you know, the dude looking at the, the big with uh, Nancy Reagan and kind of commenting on it. And, you know, I think Walter and the dude are, you know, they're two men of the same generation, but they're really kind of re representing two halves of, of sort of a post-war 70s America we have like Walter who's like the reactionary went to Vietnam yeah, or even you know, even Gungo. like Don, Donnie too just like kind of you know canceling out kind of Walter you know like aggressiveness you know yeah and the dude we we know a little bit more about him is this man who's had uh you know somewhat of a of a past and sort of political um you know left-wing politics and maybe protest movement but he's sort of like now burnt down he's sort of these two characters who both came from this you know they're part of the baby boom generation the generation that changed America following the war but we're now living in the 90s. It's been decades and they're kind of layabouts. And there's really like, what, what was the net result? You know, what makes a man? And there's these sort of men just sort of exist now in this quirky America with just sort of random characters. Like all the villains in this movie are just sort of a pastiche of different types of of different tropes of uh, there's no real like central villain and you know walter kind of expresses that saying about talking about iraq how like you know you know way back in the past america like we had it we had a good villain he's like he shows a lot of admirations for like the vietnamese he fought and he's sort of a little you know he's using some kind of more racist language he's, he's very derogatory towards sort of the modern villains and sort of contemporary american foreign conflict and i think there's a lot of really interesting kind of political insight to this movie that i i didn't really connect with as much the first time i watched it so it was really cool to see that i just think this movie is just so cool i mean the jeff bridge is one of the iconic performances his character is living on literally almost in his own personality um it's just such a comfy movie to watch uh, but there's just so much to it so easy four to five for me awesome movie uh, great watch and and funny as hell so that uh, that does it for the big lebowski i think we'll probably of course cover other coen brothers films as well too like i, I definitely want to talk about like uh, some of the stuff they've made over the years no country for man would be fun yeah <laughs> yeah they've got such a great catalog and filmography of a very a varied stuff too like adaptations and also their own original works too so let's yeah, get into a little bit of, of what we watched this week then how about uh, lawrence you're our special guest i'll kick it off with you what did you uh what did you watch this week um one of uh, um one of the movies that I I, I rewatched um, this past uh, this past week was a movie uh, called Accepted, which for those who who don't know, stars um, Justin Long and uh, Jonah Hill, and another sort of cast of sort of pretty sort of minor actors. There's not a lot. There's people you might recognize as like they've Jonah been Hill, yeah. they've they've been in stuff, um, you know, as bit players, but no one. Um, no one particularly yeah. noteworthy, at least as far as I'm aware. But it's basically about these these four kids who who for various reasons do not get into college, and they decide to. Well, one of them decides to sort of mitigate his parents' disappointment by faking a college acceptance letter, right? And so, um, but he, he Jonah Hill is his kind of smart friend, so he gets him to build a website and whatever because he knows his dad's going to want to do some checking that you know when he gets accepted, the university at least looks somewhat legit, right? In doing so, that movie kind spirals uh, that that setting spirals out of control where suddenly this fake university that was supposed to just exist for four people gets sort of 500 applicants and they all get accepted because of a snafu in communication where 
by their slogan, you know, and this is wonderful line of Justin, uh, sorry, yeah, Justin Hill's character, uh, Justin Long's character, sorry, to Jonah Hill, where he says, you know, our slogan was supposed to be, you know, accept university acceptance one click away. It wasn't supposed to be actually clickable, right? <laughs> and, and the movie continues where basically they create this sort of alternative style university whereby, you know, because these four college, you know, and sort of 19 year old, 18, 19 year olds suddenly have to create a university and they have no idea. They've never been to university. What is it like? And they get a sort of advisor to, to help them out. And he's like, well, you know, like any good, you know, business, you got to ask the customer, right? So they mm. take this this different kind of spin on on education and, and higher education, particularly, and and how it can, you know, how it's both inclusionary and exclusionary, the pros and cons, and what is there scope for different types of education, and and is different types of education still equally worthy or should you know in the, in the standardization process and that that and the pressure of education too because remember yeah. that guy's dad he's like yeah he's like, oh you're on university there's no way and it's like come on and like this other paths too you know like yeah, it's right. very just tunnel vision yeah you know? but but that said we know you know there's there's lots of places particularly in in sort of more developed countries where there are lots of graduates but not enough graduate jobs so you end up having a graduate degree and you end up working you know in in sort of you say in 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 jobs where you wouldn't need those those graduate degrees which one could then argue well you know you could have saved the expense the, the effort and whatever just working way through but at the same time and this is pointed out in the movie as well whereby the the the, the university or college experience makes you a more rounded or open-minded mm -hmm. person and it's not all about what you learn in class or the grades you get or whatever but it's about you know how do you kind of channel that environment and overcome the adversity and deal with stress and all these other things that that university life brings with it right you know and it's about young people you know maturing and meeting other people people from other cultures and all these sort of things so it's one of my favorite movies it's never going to be you know it's not the greatest movie of all time but it's fun it's light it's mm -hmm. something you pop in on an evening after a stressful day at work or something and just kind of chill and yeah there's layers you can think of you know um this is wonderful bit where the parents meet the dean and that like <laughs> the dean gets asked to like you know explain the philosophy of his university and you know he's a sort of you know he's a drunk that they've you know, but happens to have a PhD, so he qualifies. So they like, you know, he's like the the he's just been fired from working at a shoe store for making a child cry <laughs> over not buying the right sneakers. And he's like, well, you know, I'll I'll sign up to be your dean, but on one condition, I can bring my house. And he like parks his trailer on the on the lawn oh, at yeah. the like <laughs> university, and and like yeah, he, there's this wonderful way he's meeting the parents, and the parents are like, so what's it like? He's like. Uh, university education, you know, it, it, people would say it's all about, you know, a rounded experience, creating open minds, blah, blah, blah. And that's all shit, right? All it is is just breeding generation after generation of buyers and sellers, buyers and sellers, pimps and whores. And that's like, you know, and and he's just like, you know, and the parents are like super confused. They're like, can you explain that a little bit more specifically? And he's like, look, there's only one reason people go to university and that's because kids want to graduate so they can get a good job with a great starting salary and that's like the, the sales pitch and the kind of nutshell of, of university life which is I think to a certain extent maybe a bit narrow but there is some truth to that and it's kind of so the movie plays with these kind of ideas and there's a rival between this sort of 
fictional university and then the proper one which is supposed to be a sort of ivy league institution with its traditions and like all that sort of stuff and they're kind of ruffling their feathers and they're kind of ivory towers stuck up in this and that sort of thing and like yeah and it's quite wonderful of the sort of how the the student body kind of plays with that that you get these stoner skaters at one point who have to define like what they've learned at college right and they were like well we built a skate ramp and they're like so what did you learn? It's like, well, that taught us about aerodynamics and physics and like <laughs> woodworking material. And suddenly these, these two stoner skaters that haven't been to a class all year, right, suddenly become really eloquent and can like explain what they've actually learned. And that's quite, quite interesting in a, in a sort of when they have to defend this sort of radical different type of education for like what people actually get out of it and to then think about whether education in general needs to be that kind of classical way of like just a lecturer you know bombarding you with information or whether there's other forms of doing it mm. and and i think that that's a good thing to think about and and ultimately the the you know the sort of final sort of scene of the movie really is where justin long's character kind of makes an impassioned speech for their university to remain open and be accredited and he defines learning as just a sort of open-mindedness for a collection of people with an open-mindedness and a willingness to better themselves which i think yes that is a um you know that is definitely a requirement for learning but just a good mindset for life in general and just always trying to you know make the best of every situation and try and you know make your way better and it i know it can it it has its sort of soppy kind of inspirational moments or it tries to be, but it's not really preachy in that way, but it does have, have um, nice, uh, nice moments. If you, if people have seen it and do like it, then, you know, the other one that's similar, I didn't watch it this week, but I do recommend is um, the movie. Uh, it's also stars Justin Long. It's the, uh, the first $10 million is the hardest. It's one I definitely recommend where, you know, he uh, he stars as a as a guy who who basically goes to like tech school, like a technical university, MIT kind of place, and um, you know um, is is a student and trying to grasp um, basically being students and launching the first kind of tech company, a bit like Google, Facebook, those kind of things, and how that kind of environment can be very cutthroat and the pros and cons and stuff. So, what did you what did you watch this week, John? Uh, well, I didn't watch that much. I was quite busy, but uh, Friday I went to the, uh, of course, the local beloved Mayfair Theater and saw the, Very nice. the classic 1985 movie Fright Night, not the remake, uh, which I believe came out. I haven't seen it, but I when I was looking up Fright Night notes, yeah, I, I know saw Quinn, it. Was... Quinn's a big Fright Night fan of the original. Yeah, and I went into this blind, like I had no idea what it was about. I know, of course, directed by uh, Tom Holland, uh, stars uh, kind of a, an interesting mix of of characters, uh, notably uh, Chris Sarandon playing sort of the main antagonist. Uh, vampire hunter there's also william regsdale plays this like young 17 year old boy uh charlie and there's also uh the great roddy mcdowell you know from planet of the apes fame he plays this sort of throwback uh sort of like um vincent price kind of type character he's sort of this throwback like mythology kind of host television guy and the movie's really about uh this young boy charlie he has like a girlfriend amy and you know she's wanting to like get close to him and she's they're making out and it's, it's so funny like the movie does such a great job portraying its teenage characters so well but uh we find out of course that he, he sees these new people move in this next door to this new kind of this new uh couple these two men that move in and he realizes at one point seeing uh the the chris sarandon across from him the window open he's like biting into this like naked woman and finds that he's a vampire realizes this man is a vampire and it kind of gets confirmed to him and chris 
uh, Sarandi, who plays the vampire, kind of realizes that he knows he's a vampire, and um, and that kind of kicks off this movie. And and I, what I loved so much about this movie is that it, it's. I think it does such a great job at kind of adding all the elements of what makes vampire movies so good into this. Like it's got so much stuff going for it. It's, it's a comedy. So it's, it's got a lot of funny moments, a lot of campiness to it, but, but it does have a lot of horror. And there's like when, when Chris Rainer confronts Charlie, he's literally like holding him up in his bedroom and like choking the shit out of him, like ready to kill him. Like there's, there's always like a threat of violence in it. And it feels so intense. Like there's so much, uh, gothic horror but also literal body horror in this some of the practical special effects later in this movie like near the end are are incredible also erotic as hell like this movie is like quite quite sensual like there's a club scene where uh, the vampire seduces amy his girlfriend and it's it's pretty raunchy and like man chris sarandon like what a good looking man like that guy was like you know we were watching that and my my fiance is like whoo this movie is a uh, is pretty pretty erotic it was pretty good it's just it's a confluence of so many things that make vampire movies good great character moments like great great style of the way it's shot and it's it's genuinely terrifying at times but it's it's so well produced and so funny at times like it's a it's a good mix of it kind of reminded me it's not the same movie but if you've seen of course poltergeist like that has a really good mix of kind of humor genuine like funny laugh out loud sweet character it's moments. it's quite and similar also to it's quite similar to horror, lost yeah. boys too isn't it I oh yeah certainly because it kind of plays into kind of like because you know like Billy and and uh, I can't remember the 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 other vampire's name uh, uh, Jerry you know I, I don't know I can't remember if the movie actually shows it but like they're like kind of like a couple living together these two guys like they're kind of affectionate with each other and I think Lost Boys is a little bit of that too with these like kind of coming of age young men and like sexuality and kind of a mix of sort of you know traditional kind of hetero normativity but also a little bit of like there's a little bit of a queer coding too so like the movie does like a really good job at that and i i just really dug it like it was a total went into it blind i love going to see a movie like that where i have like no idea what it's about and was really blown away probably one of if not my favorite vampire movie i i really dug it i was quite positive on it so really dug it i i know there's a sequel i think that came out a couple years later called friday night part two or something which has i think uh roddy mcdowell and and william ragsdale both re- re- replay the roles as uh charlie and peter so i'm excited to check that one out but otherwise i know the remakes are also out there so maybe i'll, I'll try those those probably i've heard those aren't as good but eh, maybe they're fun uh so that was it i didn't watch too much uh curtis what did you uh what did you check out this week i watched a few things this week so i started off with the tiger king season two pretty terrible Ooh. I remember I watched the first season with my uh, my brother and we were in Ottawa. I was trapped there with the lock, the first part of the lockdown, yeah. I think. And we wa- we had a lot of weed edibles and watched the first season. It was kind of fun. <laughs> this one just, I don't know, just I guess, you know, after knowing everything we know after the first season, it just felt very exploitative, which maybe the series yeah. has always been too. And I mean, I, I think all the people are pretty trash. So it was kind of like, as I told Quinn, it was kind of trash uh, circus. Um, so it was, I didn't enjoy yeah. it very much. I watched about like <laughs> first 10 minutes and then I stopped. And then uh, I'm teaching uh, uh, on pirates uh, for one of my classes. So we're doing this uh, pirates in English novel class. And I, I told my class, I said, the best Treasure Island adaptation is uh, Muppet, Muppet Treasure, Treasure Island. Island. Hell yeah. yeah. I love that movie. It, it's so good, man. I watched it in theaters when it came out in like 1995. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Tape, that was it, you know, they kind of changed some things. They do it really well. Like they have that opening scene that's which is actually pretty scary. And they pretty like, dark, Captain, yeah. Yeah, Captain Flynn like shooting his crew, and I was like, holy shit! Like that's pretty dark for a Disney movie. <laughs> and then you know where Billy Bones dies, and you know like and Tim Curry uh, knocks so it out of the park. He's he oh, plays yeah. Long John Silver. He is you know he is perfect in the role. He is so good in that. Like yeah. one of my, my favorite bits in that movie though, and it's the. It's a bit of a not quite a non sequitur, but it's that bit where where Blind Pew yeah. uh, is they're right at the beginning. They're in the 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 tavern, you know, that that Jim and and his mother or you know whatever run, 
and blind pew appears and he's like you know obviously feeling all around and like <laughs> you know especially when the they come to kill them all right you know to get the 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 black you know because um it's the the black spot's been given and that sort of yeah, stuff the right? black spot. <laughs> and and you know but he's like you know oh, i'm you know because jim's got kind of long hair he's like oh i'm looking for some little girls you know like and <laughs> and then you know ends up you know he ends up stabbing a closet and a and a, and a grandfather clock and all sorts of stuff because he can't you know obviously yeah. can't see and they really kind of because it's a kind of kid aimed at children they really play up his kind of yeah. blindness which mm-hmm. which just is really funny just yeah it's, yeah. it's like slapstick humor almost yeah, yeah which the other you know and the other adaptations um don't it's, do it's like, quite scary in the film in the book too because it's almost like a goat like a victorian ghost story and right we could also make the comment now too i was talking about the class like there's an issue with you know disabilities like every, all the pirates have are disfigured or have like missing arm and they're obviously yeah, yeah missing limbs and stuff yeah. yeah and i mean i love treasure <laughs> island but that's a big problem but i think here they they handle the material really well and i mean this is after jim Henson's and his death too so his son brian mm-hmm. henson was dealing with it too and they had that double whammy in the 90s too because they had a christmas um, Muppet Christmas Carol too, which I also love. And so, yeah. you know, you had this, you had a Muppet Christmas Carol, then you had Muppet Treasure Island. I think this is my favorite of all of them. And I just love this. You know? but, but I think the, the thing that makes these films also a success, whether that's Treasure Island or, or Christmas Carol, is that they get, you know, legitimate serious actors to play yeah. the, the, the sort of non-Muppet roles, right? You've got yeah, Tim yeah. Curry in Treasure Island. You've got uh, Michael, Caine, theory, yeah. Michael Caine in, in Christmas Carol, right? These yeah, are... Yeah you know, award-winning serious actors, right? This is, you know... That's a lot that, of gravitas to the film. And, and you know, and that's a that's a, a slight sort of segue from the traditional Muppets kind of universe as well, right? Where you might have little bits in their, their TV show, but essentially it's about... It's about those characters, right? Yeah. And and you know, and you know, it's it's about you know the the relationship between the sort of various characters. But I think ultimately, the bit that also comes across ultimately is that you know, the Muppets are not good at anything they do, and that's no. the, that's the endearing <laughs> feature of them, right? You know, the the funny thing about yeah, Miss like Piggy is the bear is a, is a train wreck. Yeah, Miss Piggy can't sing, you know, like, you know, you know, Kermit the Frog thinks she's a great presenter, but really isn't. Like, there's all these sort of things, right? Basically, the the bit that makes them endearing and funny is the fact that they think they're hot shit and they really aren't. Yeah. And that may, and it, and it's that kind of successive failures that, that, that makes it funny, but then also yeah. makes it possible when put with the right sort of ensemble to actually play out these these movies and yeah. and makes it funny and 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 that's and and that's rather unique and and especially when you compare it to the more recent muppet movies you know that, that we've seen it's it's quite there is a contrast and and yeah. styles and narratives um with them and um but yeah those of us who who i also watch this in the cinema it it is just wonderful and and the yeah, soundtrack is up, great still holds up really and the closely. soundtrack yeah. is great right you yeah. want to sing along and you we know you cabin got cabin yeah. fever yeah. <laughs> it's burning in my brain it's you know, great. Like, and there's a there's a meta narrative too with like the little, rat, the little rats on tour and i, I kind yeah, of yeah, the, ca- so, the caribbean yeah. cruise yeah, the caribbean right they're like cruise. dancing yeah the, the muppets suck but they're good at co- breaking into a chorus and a song at the drop right. of the yeah well danced and well choreographed so they got that going it's so great and i think uh you know I think Tim Curry's performance too really captures that kind of performativity of the pirate, you know, like mm-hmm. the kind of performances they put on. Yeah. To the, something I was really trying to emphasize but, in my class. Yeah. But also that bit where, he, you know, Tim Curry, you know, again, breaks into song about being a professional pirate, yeah. right? 
but he's like trying to, you know, they do play with that, you know, well, what's a good pirate? What's a bad pirate, yeah. right? We were talking about the Big Lebowski. pirate is an occupation. Yeah. Right, like in the Big Lebowski, what makes a man? Well, in this case, it's like, well, it, there's also some element of like, well, what makes a good versus a bad man, yeah, leadership, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. what is leadership? What is, you know, you know, what are, are seen as positive jobs and not positive jobs mm. and, and these kind of things, right? You know, like... Mm. Um, the economy of the pirate <laughs> right you know and and yeah you know that's that's kind of cool yeah so it was a great movie held up really well last thing i watched or well, at least i started watching it too um i love peter jackson's work and he just released on um disney plus uh the beatles get back which is a humongous yeah. uh docu-series about okay, the recording yeah. their last album man this is like 468 minutes and i love that i think beatles are an amazing band i love their discography i think they deserve all the accolades they get but i mean that's too long for me i can't, i don't want to watch a documentary that's that long on the beatles so i i watched the first episode and it was like two and a half hours and i was like oh, that's wow. that's enough you know so my understanding is it's based well it's it's the same material that was used to film let it be like the documentary let yeah it be, which is a kind of a i've seen let it be before and it's it's kind of a sad documentary it's very yeah because like, they're all kind of falling and, apart yeah yeah there's a scene i remember i remember from that movie there's a great moment where they're like kind of just having a little jam session with Ringo and George and they're playing Octopus's Garden. Then like Paul walks in and it's like, oh, dad's here. And they kind of, you know, because at the time, famously <laughs> the Beatles, I think like 12 or 18 months earlier, Brian Epstein dies of a drug overdose. And he was the manager and kind of the, yeah. the driving force of the band. And at the time they had kind of quit um, touring. And so they were kind of getting into drugs and psychedelia and, and other stuff. And, and, you know, Paul kind of took over as sort of the leader of the yeah. band. And, you know, you can be a leader at times, but sometimes being a leader puts you at odds with being a friend and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, you get that like kind of showed, freak, freakness. Yeah and, yeah. and, you know, with John Lennon and what he was getting into with his personal relationships and his own yeah, kind of musical going, okay. discovery, there's a lot of contrast to their, you know, the, it's a band that was kind of coming apart. But I have my understanding is this documentary kind of takes like a bit of a different look. It's like it wasn't yeah. all terrible. It, it actually kind of shows a band perhaps maybe at it's sort of still very much their creative zenith. Cause you know, you think about yeah. Paul, George and John, like even Ringo, like they all, they all went their, their separate ways. And even during this period of time, they were already recording kind of their own solo yeah. stuff like Jealous Guy and, you know, give me some truth. And a lot of like the early Lennon stuff came out right from this era. And, and same with Paul with, you know, later his, his solo right. album. Yeah, imagine, but, imagine stuff coming a couple of years later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like they, they were still very much in their creative primes. Like I think Paul was only 26 when the Beatles were formally yeah, over. Like George, George Harrison with that triple album, all things. Must oh pass, yeah. Too. All things must yeah. pass. And you know, I, I'm not a big Ringo music fan, but you know, he's done pretty funny stuff <laughs> in the Sevies of photograph and, you know, he, he had some stuff going on. I think he was dating like Bond girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His personality above all else really shown. And I think I'm really excited to watch it. I'm, I, yeah, but that's such a long movie. I got to, yeah, Peter Jackson is a documentarian. Really cool, I mean, though, Peter Jackson, Jackson's great. I loved like uh, the, the one he did on the World War One. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just a little bit too long for me, I think. And I think um, I think if you're a huge Beatles fan, like I've talked to people who loved every minute, but it was, it was just a little bit too much for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was <laughs> I was thinking that uh, Lemmy, too, because Lemmy talked about the Beatles when he was live from Motorhead. And he's like, he's like, John, John Lennon was the asshole of the band. <laughs> it's kind of funny. So now whenever I watch Beatles footage, I always think of like John, John Lennon being the asshole, which may or may not be true. But like, I mean, it's kind of funny anyway. But it was kind of uh, cool to check out. And I, I am grateful that we have, we're, we live in a time where we have all this footage available to watch if we want to watch it too. So yeah. that was kind of cool on Disney Plus. 
Um, but that's all I watched this week. So well, that was fun. I mean, uh, it was so fun to talk about big, the big Lebowski because that's such a, a cool yeah. Great time, you love Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, you miss Quinn, it was... but it's like we get we lose a Quinn and get a Lawrence this week. So it's yeah, good. thank you for joining us, Lawrence. It was great having you on. You're always welcome to come on for uh, any future yeah. episodes if there's stuff more more uh, more movies that uh, pique your fancy and you'd love well, to talk I'm, about. You know, like when you me. guys return for for Fargo, you know, hey, you know. Oh yeah, maybe we'll do some Cohen Brothers. Uh, yeah, you watch know, a series uh, and we'll get you on for some. Be of interesting, you know, to especially you know have a discussion maybe around Fargo the the movie versus the series. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, that would be which cool. which you know I love both. Um, I love the series. I like how they they did that. You know, in a way, yeah. in reverse. Mm-hmm. You know that they they start with uh, the movie and more detail, obviously the the first season, but then each season subsequent season is kind of a prequel to what has gone before right yeah and, exactly. and I, I i love that like cinematic choice i think that's that's great um mm-hmm. to really kind of tie up some of those some of those gaps we, we see and obviously the actors um in it you know are, are great you know so yeah um for from the big lebowski for those who haven't seen i know curtis we were talking about it he hasn't seen it but yeah if you guys want to laugh in a kind of not too serious um series Check out um, Peter Stormare in, in Swedish Dicks. Um, that is hilarious. Um, yeah, as Peter Stormare, Keanu Reeves, and some. Unfortunately, I don't know the name of the, the gentleman. It, it would feel a bit a bit a bit wrong to call him some no name Swede, but unfortunately, I, I I think that is what the case is. Peter Stormare and this other gentleman, they two Swedish private detectives in LA with their um, slightly unhinged um, North Korean secretary. And um, it, yeah, it is just a, a very quirky and very funny. And so, yeah, do check that out if you if you up for a bit of a laugh and nothing too serious. And Keanu Reeves's character is is wonderful, also in a bit of a in the way that that's portrayed and and kind of plays through the through the show. Yeah, mm. and uh, I I actually admittedly for our next episode don't know really what's up next. I know we've got a couple of separate things we could do. I I know. Um, of course yeah, you do, you're doing doing your episode next aren't you the commitments aren't you okay yeah so we're gonna do my my second personal canon film choice which uh, i know i want to talk about the commitments so i think that might be our next episode of course we're also continuing with our john carpenter watch series as well too and and we'll probably do other one-off episodes and stuff like that too like we love having guests on and and sharing what their favorite film is and talking about that it's it's led us to talk about some really great movies and revisit some classics so um and of course i think next week i'm probably going to probably get some more movie watching and we're getting close to the holiday season so i think yeah, i'll have Christmas a is more, coming. <laughs> more free time to catch up on some uh my backlog of of endless endless growing backlog of films but uh yeah it was great chatting today um of course yeah, you too, uh, of course yeah and uh, anything to plug i of course everyone check us out uh, on you know on our instagram seat struck on instagram of course check us out yeah, i think uh, quinn, quinn has a couple new reviews up too on uh seat struck reviews yeah of course uh, for me check out uh domestic pints only it's a podcast me and a few buddies we a drink great review beer and uh got some episodes coming up some fun ones so check that out and otherwise uh anything else you guys want to mention before we uh wrap up today i'm uh i'm feeling pretty peckish i'm gonna have something i like guess that. i got i got everything yet yeah no i'm good yeah cool, we'll see cool. we'll see you next thanks, time thanks guys for having me you're welcome and we're looking forward to discussing the commitments with you that'll be great oh yeah so oh yeah stay tuned, stay tuned folks <laughs> take care folks have a good one yeah.